0: Morning. This morning, our scripture is coming from the book of Luke again. We are in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Oh, nope. Okay, we'll just stay right there. Should have checked that out before I got up here. Okay, Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats. So that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. God often becomes manifest in the ordinary, even seemingly unnecessary events of a person's life. Events which nevertheless are in accord with some purpose that is or is not known. Throughout history, the church has continued to exist and carry on its ministry in spite of the tenuous response of its members. The ancient image of the church as a fisherman's boat tossed about on the sea, but sustained by the presence of the living Lord, is appropriate in every age. Uh, it's Arlen's quote. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that last name, but, but I thought it was a lovely way to, to, to set the stage for our sermon this morning, for our time together. Our scripture this morning is one that is very common. If you've spent any time in church, you've, you've heard the calling of the first disciples in this account. Different gospels tell a little bit different versions, highlighting the calling of, of certain disciples, uh, highlighting certain call stories that, that fit the narrative of the gospel that they're trying to create. It also fits the audience that they're talking to. There were certain disciples that were more important for certain people groups. Just a reminder that we're still in the season of Epiphany. That's why we've got the sparkly background. We're still walking with Jesus and learning from his inbreaking into the world. As we've been following Jesus, we've been challenged by his miracles, by the way he describes his mission, and learning how that reshapes our actions, our intentions, and our purposes in the world. In Luke, Jesus has been baptized with all the people. He has spent time in the desert being tempted, uh, though he didn't preach on that text, uh, gone to his hometown and told them all that that he was all of the prophecies fulfilled. And again, he shared his message from God that God was not their own personal God, that God had sent Jesus to everyone because he loved everyone. They weren't the only ones that Jesus was coming to heal and to save. And still... Jesus is preaching, and despite the, the reception he received in our scripture from the last two weeks in his hometown, here we see crowds following Jesus everywhere he goes. There's something to what they're pre- what he's preaching that they want to hear. They're captivated by his words. In fact, we see in the scriptures just before this that Jesus cannot seem to get away from the crowds. They just keep pursuing him. They wouldn't leave him alone. He's also doing some healing and miracles, and so that also probably keeps a crowd coming. Since we last sees it, saw Jesus walking away from the cliffside, if you remember, he was, they were threatening to push him down. It wasn't it's not like a cliff you fall off, but kind of rolling down and doing a good bit of damage rolling down. Since we've last seen Jesus, he's exorcised a demon. You know, uh, they were amazed. The people were amazed that even the demons seemed to respond to Jesus. And it says in verse 37, And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. They like this guy. They're excited about Jesus. Then in verse 38, he goes to Simon's house. uh, Simon Peter that we're talking about here in the boat. He goes to Simon Peter's house after another trip to the synagogue. Jesus heals his mother-in-law there, and that triggers people with all kinds of ailments being brought to Jesus for him to heal. It was about the miracle, but you have to also remember that we didn't have there was no level of modern medicine or any kind of medicine for these people. Minor things would have kept them out of being able to work, would have kept them from their families, would have marked them as unclean. And in fact, it would have marked them as being shamed because it was thought that if somebody had an ailment, somebody was sick, it meant that not only uh, had maybe they sinned, but maybe it was their parents or their family, somebody was to blame for what happened. And so they were ostracized. So these people who had no hope were all coming to Jesus for a a chance at hope. Jesus tries to depart to a quiet place, but the crowds find him and follow him and actually try to keep him amongst themselves. The crowds are getting a little aggressive at this point. But Jesus says to them in 443, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. I don't know why, but when I picture Jesus like in this crowd that's trying to keep him in place, like that scene just plays out funny in my head just me and so he keeps visiting the synagogues but here we see the mob has followed him and he's standing by the sea uh, by the lake of Gennesaret which is also known as the sea of Galilee and how I will refer to it because the sea of Galilee is a lot easier to say than the lake of Gennesaret whether it was the crowd pressing in or, or if maybe he had something else in mind that morning even as he asked Peter for, for use of his boat, he asked to be taken out from the water he can preach. Create a kind of amphitheater there on the shore without having the mob encroaching on him. We actually, can you put up the picture, the next one? the pi- Yes, yeah, so this is the Sea of Galilee. It's way more lush than I would have thought it was. Um, ignore... The bottom part of my um, computer screen there. This is a National Geographic. I thought it would be good to have that image behind us. where, Where the scene is playing out. The fishermen including Simon Peter whose boat Jesus is now on. Have been cleaning and repairing their nets from the night. And National Geographic also posted this picture this just this week. This is fishermen in India mending their nets. And when I found other places, uh, there was, um, I just thought it was a beautiful image. And so while these folks are on the shore not necessarily mending their nets, they're cleaning their nets from the night, um, I, I think it's a beautiful image to have behind us, just a reminder. They had to be tired had to be frustrated because as we learn later they didn't catch anything. They have nothing to sell, nothing to eat, nothing to support their families with. They were tired and they were ready to go home and now this Jesus wants to get in their boat and preach. Remember that Simon Peter had already connected to Jesus before. Jesus has healed his mother-in-law so there's already a connection there. It's kind of an ordinary act. I mean, not that I think a lot of preachers showed up at the Sea of Galilee with mobs wanting to listen to them preach. But but this first request seems pretty harmless. Let me get in your boat. And then the fishermen are all listening to what Jesus is saying as well. Perhaps it was maybe the way that Jesus asked it, something Jesus said before he got in the boat. Maybe it was that Simon Peter feels that he he owes Jesus respect because he healed his mother-in-law. Or maybe it's because combined with that healing and with what Peter has already experienced of Jesus in the synagogue and his home and, and now on the boat, he decides to trust Jesus when he makes another seemingly ordinary request. Throw those nets back in the water. Try again. Just put yourself in Peter's shoes at this moment. He is an expert fisherman. He's been doing this all night long. He's tired and he's frustrated. He's come up with nothing and now his nets have already been cleaned. One commentary pointed out that the kind of nets they would have been used during the night are different from the nets that they would use during the day. So not, as Je- not only is Jesus saying, hey, why don't you throw those back out there? Let's see what comes up. But it's the wrong kind of nets. Has someone ever come to your job with someone with no expertise in your area and tried to tell you how to do it? Or, or someone tried to tell you how to do a, a project at school, maybe something that you know more about? somebody in in, when you're playing sports that comes along and tells you how to do it. Um, So I'm not making a political statement, but this meme also came up this week and I was like, that is just too perfect when someone tries to explain your area of expertise to you. I feel like maybe no matter how much faith Peter had at this moment, his face may have looked a little bit like this when Jesus said, throw the nets back in the water. Whatever Simon Peter was feeling, whether out of obligation, politeness, or curiosity, remember that he'd seen Jesus healing his mother-in-law. Not catching anything all night would have been a really big deal. Maybe there's some kind of spark of hope in him as well. And so he puts the night nets back in the water, and as he begins to pull it back up, he realizes it's too full. He can't do it alone. He's got to have someone, multiple someones, come and help him pull this back into the boat. He's so overwhelmed with Jesus in this magical moment that he bows down and asks for forgiveness. And then, according to Luke, Jesus gives him an offer he can't refuse. Like literally. Jesus just tells him that they're going to all start following him now. There's, if you notice in the text, there's not an invitation, there's a telling. Uh, but it's a telling that they all accept. We don't know what it looked like um, despite all of those of us who grew up in the 90s uh, in Christian music. Uh, there's lots of different images that we were given of what this scene looked like to dramatically leave the nets and the boats behind. We don't, we don't know what it looked like. But we do know that after this moment, these men started following Jesus. And a few questions come to my mind. The first is why? Why did Jesus go to the sea that day? Jesus had a purpose when he went to the sea that day. Simon Peter didn't know it at first when Jesus showed up. He was just being faithful and agreeable and trusting with the little normal things that Jesus was asking for. But Jesus had a larger purpose in mind. Jesus has started his ministry and now he wants to build a community around him. This would have been a common practice. Rabbinic teachers would have had followers. People that learned from them and their specific understanding of scripture. Each rabbi was supposed to keep reinterpreting scripture for a new generation, a new culture. And they would have taught their teachings to others that would then have spread that teaching to other people. So this is pretty common. But this was Jesus. He could have done this alone. But he went to build a community. The church and the movement of God has always been involved in community. We see that back in the Old Testament. It's the story of the changing relationship of God with a people that went from being nomads all alone to being a community together. Who? Who is Jesus calling? These fishermen would not have been Hebrew scholars. Obviously there's some connection between them and the synagogue because we know that Jesus left the synagogue to go to Simon Peter's house. But, but they were fishermen. While they would have had some knowledge of the text, they haven't been studying them exclusively since childhood. They were hard workers. They would have been kind of the equivalent of middle-class businessmen today. But they weren't scholars. These were normal guys, salt-of-the-earth kind of people that God is calling. And while they leave their nets... We know, at least in some respects, some of them come back to those nets, come back to their trade in order to fund their ministry later on. Who? Who is Simon Peter following? While others do surrender to the call this day, we're going to primarily focus on Peter for our reflective purposes this morning. Simon Peter has heard this man speak, He's heard the chatter about him, he's seen the miracles, and he just cannot get away from Jesus. I don't know about you, but there is something about Jesus that I cannot ignore. Something that I cannot quit. I may find myself struggling with the local church. Yes, in and, and all honesty, over the years there have been at least parts of the local church have wanted to be done with. I may be frustrated these days with cultural Christianity and its actions in the world, especially in our American culture. I may have questions if I stop and think too much, start looking for too many explanations. But it's like the fish in the net. There are just things you cannot explain. Too many things happening in the world that I can't explain it away. There are too many of Jesus' teachings that I know if we were really to follow it would turn the world upside down. Too many things that I have seen, too many times I have been moved beyond explanation and I find myself like Peter, falling on my knees, claiming I'm not worthy and following Jesus wherever that leads. Who are you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Are you still hanging on to the belief that Jesus couldn't possibly use you? Or maybe calling and the idea of following Jesus seem just to be for those minister types. Calling. It's an unusual word that we use in church. In other parts of our culture, we use calling to talk about knowing what you were created for, what you were meant to do in the world. And it's the same in church culture, except that we usually only talk about it as it relates to a calling to ministry or, or a calling to serve in some specific capacity within the church or, or whether we don't feel called to serve in a certain capacity in the church. Us minister types talk about our call story how we knew we were called into ministry. My call story has taken some shifting of the way I understood myself, the way I understood God. We grew up in church. Like we weren't allowed to participate anything that took away from being available on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesday nights. Our dad was Sunday school director for many years and so we were at the church before the ministers were and other staff. We were the first people there to unlock the doors. The first time I served in church, the first time I got the bug, was for my Sunday school teacher, Miss Morton. Ms. Morton had been a school teacher and at the time was serving as an elementary school principal. Because we were always there early, she would create jobs for me to do, tasks that I got to complete in order to help prepare for Sunday school. I felt a part of the leadership and I felt important. I felt responsible what was, for what was happening in our Sunday school class, like I was Ms. Morton's assistant. She called me out as a leader because she had been willing to step up as a leader herself. She wasn't even someone who had been particularly active in our church as I remember. Her mom had taught the younger kids Sunday school class forever since Moses had been in that Sunday school class of the church. And so this Miss Morton agreed to teach for one year. Fast forward to when I was leaving the teaching profession, going to seminary, and and was finally ordained. I had graduated from seminary and had been serving as a campus minister for four years before I was ordained. I had a teacher on my ordination panel, and she asked me, "Well, what's the difference between our callings? Why was I asking for ordination? Was her vocation, her teaching, calling as well? What made mine different? And it was such a good question. What is the difference? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to toss down the nets and follow? Does it mean that everyone literally tosses out the nets? I mean, we can't, right? We can't all follow the traditional path of how we've understood calling and ministry and go to seminary, serve in a church, et cetera, et cetera. I think we've gotten this wrong a lot of times. I responded to this woman that I had been a teacher. I had been a good teacher. I'd been good at teaching. But I also knew it wasn't what I was made for. I knew that I had been created for ministry. I'd had the incredible blessing of serving alongside of other teachers who were created to teach, that were made for that. For what I was created to do, ministry within the church, ordination, is the way that I would be seen and recognized by others as a leader. It was important for living out my calling as a ministry leader to be ordained. However, I believe that God had called and created her to be a teacher, to live out her faith and her calling within a school and a classroom. My favorite, favorite author, Parker Palmer, talks about understanding your calling, what you were created for like this. It's a long quote, but just hang with me because nobody can say it like Parker Palmer. We arrive in this world with birthright gifts. Then we spend the first half of our lives abandoning them or let others disabuse us of them. As young people, we are surrounded by expectations that may have little to do with who we really are. Expectations held by people who are not trying to discern our selfhood but to fit us into slots. In families, schools, workplaces, and religious communities, we are trained away from true self true self toward images of acceptability under social pressures like racism and sexism our original shape is deformed beyond recognition and we ourselves driven by fear too often betray true self to gain the approval of others our deepest calling is to grow into our own authentic selfhood whether or not it conforms to some image of who we ought to be As we do so, we will not only find the joy that every human being seeks, we will also find our path of authentic service in the world. True vocation joins self and service, as Frederick Buechner asserts when he defines vocation as the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Palmer says that while your job may change many times your vocation is defining what it is that you cannot not do in the world. Understanding who God created and called you to be that is your vocation that's your calling. These things make up what it is you cannot not do and that thread runs throughout your life from childhood to adulthood think this is what this encounter in scripture was really about. It was about encountering Jesus in this ordinary request to let Jesus preach from the boat and then to put out a little further and drop the nets. It was in the day-to-day living and working that Peter, when he encountered Jesus there in that place, came into contact with his calling, his literal calling from Jesus. This morning, I wonder, what are the ordinary actions, the ordinary work that you need to entrust to God? Where as a student do you need to pay attention to where God's at work amongst your classmates? Do you need to pay attention to see God in your own work? We've talked about the who, and the who is, is all of us. Jesus is calling all of us. We've talked about the what. The what is a calling to know all of who we are. To use all of who we are in our vocation. Our calling in this world. And finally for the how. How do we do this in the world? How do we live lives that show and point to Jesus? How do we live out calling in the day-to-day life of our world? This is what the journey of discipleship is all about. It's something that we're paying attention to every day. We have to, to pray to know where to be disciples of Christ at school, at work, while we're playing sports, while we're running our businesses, teaching the kids, parenting, being in relationship with family. But there is something that runs through all of that, and it's a little different for each of us. Vocation at its deepest level is something I can't not do, for reasons I'm unable to explain to anyone else and don't fully understand myself, but that are nonetheless compelling. In the movie City Slickers, and I would show you the video clip, but there's some unseemly language in this video clip, so just hang with me while I describe it to you. In the movie City Slickers, a group of guys goes out to a dude ranch to answer some of life's deep questions. They're all unhappy with how life has turned out. And they're hoping for some answers about getting back to hard work and getting back to the earth. On a long, dusty horse ride, Curly, the old surly cowboy from the ranch that you see here, tells Billy Crystal's character that the secret to life, one thing, it's just one thing for each of us, Once you figure out that one thing, the rest doesn't matter. The truth of Epiphany is that God just keeps showing up in the ordinary. Jesus calls us into waters to do what we've already been doing, to teach us something we never knew, and to do something more miraculous than we ever thought possible. You were created and you were called. What is your one thing? What will you do with that this morning? As we end our our sermon time together, we're going to have a a reflection this morning that's just going to be in your seats. There'll be some questions that come up. Questions for reflection. Questions for you to think about. And to think about who God created you to be. What are you being called to do and to be in the world? That's for all of us, for every age, whether you've been to seminary or not, whether you're in school every day or in business or at home. We are all called and created. What is your one thing this morning?